Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Windsor Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. You and I had a little break from this. Uh, it was fantastic to get back into it. We had Alex DeBranco on today to talk about the history of publishing, the history of writing, and how it is evolved to us as comedians and content creators. This was a deep episode. We covered a range of stuff. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I feel like we came very dangerously close to comedians talking about comedy, but <laughs> it really wrapped with the topic really well. And uh, you know what? I, th- I thought it was good. I thought it was important. I like this episode a lot, personally. I did too. It was a lot of fun. Uh, as you can also find Alex at Z on Twitter. We're going to have a link down in the show notes to find it as well. Alex DeBranco on uh, TikTok and Instagram. His videos are so good. Check out out his videos please he's so, funny. he's so great he's even got a, a web series distance that that we talk about quite a bit that you're definitely gonna want to check out we assume as you'll find out more about <laughs> in just a little bit if you stick around and listen to this episode we hope you will yeah let's get into it let's go Alex DeBranco, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, y'all. I'm excited. Absolutely. We got you and I got to talk a little bit less yesterday because you're helping me out and stepping into Cabin Fever, uh, where you're going to help host, produce, which is, is going to be a lot of fun. We're really glad to have you on board. Yeah, I'm excited. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I think I'll, that's the right place to be. It is. I mean, that is is very much the profession we've chosen anyway, which is just kind of making shit up as you go and uh, yeah, pretending exactly. you know what you're doing. That's what this whole podcast has been, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember what we were a movie podcast? Yeah, like like for the first three episodes. And then I found out that I had an excuse to research for 10 hours and everyone was like, no one is making you do this. And I was like, I, I feel like I have to do it. You guys should do a where did this go wrong for this podcast. <laughs> that was actually pitched, I think, on what was it, Polyphy's episode. And yes, we absolutely still have to do that. Honestly, our disaster episode was probably, oh, the night of the election. That one was where it was. We were just we were, the day after we were all had been up all night waiting for results. And Damn. we're like, none of us to have the energy to discuss the history of trains. <laughs> yeah, it was the history of trains. We had a writer for The Daily Show on. All of us were like punch drunk and just checking our phones and just being like, I like the noise they make. Has anyone heard anything yet? Like, <laughs> And I, I was still new enough at this that I thought, you know what everyone is going to be fascinated by is the credit mobilier scandal. That's a thing that everyone is familiar with. Uh, <laughs> so that was an exciting episode that I still enjoy re-listening to, but was absolutely like one of the hardest ones to get through. Wait, you say you still enjoy listening to it? Like you've listened to it multiple times? Just like still holds up? It still still holds up. (laughs) You are a classic narcissist. (laughs) Listening to your own podcast to lull yourself to sleep. (laughs) I like to go through and pick apart every single thing I said slightly awkwardly and then just, you know, stay up all night staring at the ceiling, torturing myself with that. That's comedy. (laughs) I have the exact opposite approach. I don't think I've ever listened to an episode willingly of this podcast. I would rip myself (laughs) to shreds every time and then be like, I'm never recording another one. When is the one that does all of our final checks and has to listen to every single episode <laughs> before we upload. So I'm good. I'm glad you're torturing yourself with this too. I'm so bad. I'm like you when I'm so bad at watching my own stuff. I 
made this web series, this like 11 episode series. It did really well and it was great and people loved it. It was in 2018 and I still haven't watched it since we released it. I just like can't. You're like, yeah, I hear good things. Yeah. <laughs> people seem to really dig it and that's cool. We ask you before you come on what you want us to plug. That would be a good thing. <laughs> so please tell us about this web series. Oh, damn. It's so, See, I don't even want to promote it. That's how bad it is. <laughs> it's called Distance. It's about a couple in a long distance relationship. And every episode is split into two parts, the guy's side and the girl's side. And you can decide which one you want to watch first. And depending on which you watch first, you kind of get a different experience of the episode of like who's telling the truth or whatever. Oh, that is a very cool concept. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, we, we were at South by and like the New York Times dug it. It was oh, like wow. really good. I mean, it was cool. And I have not been able to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when it does that well, I, I would definitely want to check it out. But no, I mean, I, I know it's hard. It's hard watching yourself because you know what you want it to be. And it's one of those things, too, that, you know, you have to tape your sets. You have to go back and watch over it because you see the little things you can do better but it is so painful seeing especially when you go back to like an early one that you did like a couple years ago it's like oh my god I can't believe I thought any of this was funny ever <laughs> I forget who said it but the thing when I first started in comedy that was just like hey you're getting into this because like you have like good taste like you're pursuing the things that you love and therefore every time you see the things that you make you're comparing it to that and you're going to fucking hate it. Oh, that's really interesting. I think that was Ira Glass. I had that quote like on my wall. Is it? It's still true. It's just like forever true. That does actually make me feel better. Yeah. It's like your taste and your output are not the same. And that's so painful. <laughs> Especially too, when it's like, even with the stuff you love, you can only watch it so many times. And I have told every one of my jokes like 300 times, at least in my head or in the mirror. And it's like, how long is this entertaining for before it is just white noise to me? That's why you like having me in the audience because I like hyena scream laugh at Fantastic. all of your jokes <laughs> after we've been doing shows together for like three years now. Yeah. <laughs> It is it is such a boost. And going through the, the tapes afterwards, it's like, oh, OK, this one was a good one because I heard that laugh. So it's like, all right, I know that one worked. <laughs> but speaking of which, this was was the kind of stuff we wanted to cover today. We wanted to talk about some of Substack and writing and, and the pressure put on comedians today to basically self-publish, self-promote, to put out their own material. So we're also going to get into some of the history of, of publishing in a minute, but let's talk a bit about what that has been first. I know you're doing videos, you're doing things across platforms. We're going to have the actual links down the show note, but you're at DeBranks, D-O-B-R-E-N-K-Z on Twitter, Alex DeBranco on Instagram and TikTok. You're doing videos, you're writing jokes. You have a new Substack coming out soon, right? It's actually out already. I just don't ever, I don't ever put stuff in it. Yeah. <laughs> so what is has this been like for you, especially with now a new baby, the pressure to create constantly? I mean, it's a lot. It's heavy. It's just like I can't do anything without thinking about, you know, it's content potential. So there's that, like everything is like content, which is dark and sad. And then also like when I do come up with an idea, I immediately run it through the filter of like, is this going to be a banger? Yes. And always the answer is yes, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like and both of those things are just like, I don't think very good for your art, you know, to just be constantly thinking like, oh, this is going to fucking blow up because it never does, you know, almost never. And it could be algorithm dependent, too. It doesn't necessarily reflect the work. It's the fact that you're throwing it up on the Internet. Totally. I mean, it used to really, really mess me up when I started. So like during the pandemic, I started making my own videos. And this is true for publishing, for writing stuff, too. It's across the board. But with the videos that I would make for social media, like one minute 
minute, two minute long comedic sketches. And when they wouldn't do well, which is like a barometer that never is like always changing anyways in my head, I would be like really depressed. You know, like my wife would like have to really handle it. Like it was like, I would go into these holes, you know, and those holes have gotten less and less intense. And now I'm a lot better at it. But in the last like few months, I've also started writing in this Substack, which is called Both Are True. And it's just like kind of my thoughts on like creativity and making shit and, you know, just stuff that like sometimes I come up in my head and I want to share, you know, and when those don't do well, meaning like not a lot of people give me good feedback or whatever, I'm really sad, like really, really bummed. It's hard not to take it personally. You put yourself into this. Right. And it's something that if you put it out there, it's typically because you believe in it. Totally. And I think one of the challenging things too is if I'm on stage and I tell a joke, I can tell if it bombs because of the audience or because of me, or if it did well, whether it was an easy audience or it was actually a good joke. It doesn't take too long before you learn enough to be able to tell what is actually happening, what you need to do because of it. If I post a joke online and it doesn't work, I have no idea what that means. I've reposted one from like four years ago when I had a thousand followers and it was the best one I ever did at the time. I post it now with 80,000 followers and it bombs. And it's like, all right, well, clearly this is not a quality thing. This is an algorithm thing. So what is this? How do I change this? What do I have to do when it is entirely external and there's not a shift I can do, but you still take it personally because it's like, this is good. This is something I worked on. And it is, I think to your mention of how you absorb everything as content too, it's something I try and take a break from. And it's like, oh, I've got a life here. I want to just enjoy. And I realize I can't work all the time, but you start filtering your brain. This is what the job is. It's to try and filter everything you see into that slightly skewed view, which means it's very hard to approach anything normally to just appreciate it. And, you know, you brought up the baby. Like I had a a baby, he's six months old now. And I think that has just heightened all of this because now I'm like, shit, I don't have time. You know, like I'm behind even more than I ever was. So like, I gotta, you know, make all of this stuff happen. So that that kind of gets to your point of like, that sort of like entrepreneurial, whatever thing that you have to do of like, I gotta be hustling, I have to have a brand, a blog, like a newsletter, all this shit. And it's like, that is both exciting to me, because I feel like I can do that stuff, I can see how to do it. But it's really overwhelming. And it takes the art and the fun out of it. And I think that's what I felt with the writing. You know, like I look back at like emails that I've sent to like my friends. I used to love doing that. Emailing my friends like funny shit, you know? That was just me writing, me having a good time writing, you know? And now that everything is like, it needs to achieve this grand vision of like, (laughs) you know, success. It's not fun anymore. And I don't know how to, I don't know what to do. I think that's absolutely an issue that that I've I've dealt with too. And, And also there's some writer's block where you just can't think of anything and some writer's block where you're just so deep in it that you can't see angles anymore. And that's when I find most frustrating where it's like, I know there is a better way to approach this, but I am just so deep in from everything being content and this perspective I'm trying to push that the stuff I'm creating doesn't feel as unique and I can't get my mind to back out of it to see it new. I mean, there's a big difference between writing something because you're like, I had this great idea of this thing that I want to create and the other side of it, which is social media and like self-promotion wise of just like, okay, I have to figure out a way to combine Cheetos and Squid Game and come to really like make this joke blow up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I 
especially right when you're trying to hit topical and it's like, okay, well, this is going to be incredibly popular for the next 18 hours and you better get the best joke possible in here. And from what you mentioned about having to hit things from so many angles and do so many different things, I actually made a list when you brought up this topic of everything I'm currently working on just in a regular, this is the stuff I think about every day. I've got the list here, audience. I write, host, produce the podcast. I produced, host, perform in two stand-up shows. I run social media accounts across multiple platforms. I write for theme accounts. I write articles. I write for other social accounts that I'm paid to write for. I write and perform sketches, write scripts. I'm on my third pilot now, perform in other stand-up shows. I've now developed and write a comic strip we have to run social media for. And over like the four years I've done this, I have written over 15,000 jokes. And every day I feel like, oh, there's no way I'm doing enough. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> That's an insane amount of stuff to have on my daily list to be thinking, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> I can't I can't make it with just that. And it's a common trope now that like in the 80s, you just had to write a joke about how you hated your wife and you got a stand-up career. Can you imagine like back in the days where you're like, dear cheers, I would like to write an episode. Yeah. <laughs> Come through. And the thing is, this, this list is not that insane. Like, yes, I, I recognize it's a lot. I recognize it's a lot more than what many people are doing, but also I know comics doing more. And the biggest thing for me, I know I've talked about this before, is I've obviously got some health issues, not being able to get to stand-up shows. It's one of those things that I think about, you know, daily where it's like, oh yeah, I mean, I, I might've spent eight hours writing today, but if it's not on stage, that doesn't count. <laughs> and it is the most insane career choice. Whereas like nobody made me do any of this, but I love it. I really love it. I would just also like a break. And when I take a break to not feel bad about taking that break. <laughs> yeah. And like the dark truth about all that, too, that I've realized recently is like if all you're doing is working and the point of your comedy or your work is to like share truths about your life, which it is for me, and all you do is work, then it's not that interesting. You're not really doing the living part. Right. Yeah. That's a very good way to put it. It's a snake eating its own tail at that point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I, and I feel like there's an act of faith or trust or something of just like, you have to let go and kind of just be like, it might succeed, it might not, but I can't control it. And I think doing the most is just trying to control it the most. It's like, if I have to do the, all the things all the time, otherwise I'm not going to succeed. But it's like, that's not true. And that's really hard to accept for me. No, for me too. That's like, I realize there is a way to success that does not involve giving myself an aneurysm from stress and from doing every single thing all the time. Because ultimately, I do believe in my work. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe in the work I'm doing. But, you know, it is also an industry that's based on the right people and luck and chance. And because of that, I think it feels more and more like, well, I have to do everything in case this is the one thing where someone's there that's going to be the connection I need. But you're right. It is very much one where you need to be able to take the step back and trust that what you're doing is good because ultimately this is the content I want to produce. This is what I want to be doing on a larger scale. It's not going to make me happier to be doing something different just to get in there. And you want to hear the craziest part about it? Please. This all started in some form in 3500 BCE in Mesopotamia. <laughs> I was so glad we got to go back to Mesopotamia on this one. <laughs> Always my favorite. Now that you say it, that is the craziest part. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's get into the history a, a little bit here. So what I wanted to trace was so the history of publishing, which was really the history of writing, because the books in some form did appear here. And these were written in clay tablets in cuneiform. This is the writing style developed by the Sumerians. We often discuss in this podcast because they in Mesopotamia are my favorite. It turns out pretty much everything started there. And they were immediately calling it content, right? It, yes. <laughs> that was how it started. Yeah. It was 180 <laughs> characters and the truth. That's what they said. That 
That was their tagline. <laughs> well, and at this time, too, it was a lot more effort to create it because, well, it's, here's the thing. It's mostly pictured as being chiseled into stone, which, of course, was also done, especially when necessary when carved into walls or decorative. But Sumerians just wrote into wet clay, typically using a reed pen called the calamus, and then dried the clay in a fire kiln to preserve it. So these stone tablets we have are, in fact, you know, they were much easier to write in. And this was something that was very much an art of the time. Making a reed pen itself was a detailed process involving the treatment and carving of an unbroken reed. Due to being much stiffer than the eventual quill, they didn't hold their point nearly as long. So being able to even make the reed pen became this necessary skill of any scribe. This is something you would study for, you would train for, to be one of the few that could write here. And the work was abundant at Nineveh. Over 20,000 tablets were found, dating from the 7th century BCE. And this was the archive of the Library of the Kings of Assyria. And the kings, they would have workshops of copyists and conservationists available to them, which suggests a pretty significant degree of organization in regards to books, even having methods of classification this early. They preserved early Sumerian writing, shows it being used largely for record keeping, to record legal contracts, create lists of assets, and then to eventually record Sumerian literature and myths. But scribal schools have even been found dating to at least the second millennium BCE, where students were taught the art of writing, which is what it was considered, which I thought in of itself was very interesting, was that it was not the creation of content that was necessarily as prized as much as just the being able to preserve it. So the next development in writing came from ancient Egypt, where marrow would be extracted from the stems of papyrus reed and then go through a process of humidification, pressing, drying, gluing, and cutting, leading to various quality papyrus, the best being used for sacred writing. And this might have started as early as the first dynasty, putting it roughly around the same time period as writing in Mesopotamia. But the first evidence is from the account books of the pharaoh Neferkar. I practiced this one so many times. Do it. <laughs> say, Kare- say it right. <laughs> Neferkare Kakai in the 5th dynasty around 2400 BCE. <laughs> that was impressive. Thank you very much. This used a hieratic script, which was a more simplified form than hieroglyphs, more suited for manuscripts, while hieroglyphs would be engraved or painted. And Egypt got good at this. They would export the papyrus to other Mediterranean civilizations, including Greece and Rome, where it was dominant until parchment made from predominantly sheep and goat skin, but other animals became dominant. And references show parchment existing from around the same time period. Only one fragment from the 6th dynasty remains. Next examples are from the 12th and 13th dynasty, so far later. So we're agreeing that the stone tablets were the better product. I mean, in terms of life expectancy, yeah. I'm just saying, if you're trying to keep records of legal documents and shit, I'm saying it looks like them writing into cement like their kids on the playground <laughs> was the better method. No, it is far more preserved from that time because of that, although we have in various places found. I mean, the technical term is a fuck ton of papyrus. There is, is so much that we've been th- thankfully found, but we're going to get into all of the ones that were lost too, because there was quite a bit. And this was basically the origin of the scroll. Papyrus would be presented by pasting several sheets together and rolling it, often 10 or more meters long. Some books, like the history of the reign of Ramses III, were over 40 meters long. Also, this is one where language becomes significant because what we're used to calling a book is a codex. It's the form that it's held in. The book refers to itself as the writing on an aspect that holds it. So technically a scroll was a book, parchment was a book, and a codex is a book, which is just a book to us. Oh, that's called a codex. Yes, technically the form of of being multiple pages bound together, which was originally done with just kind of holding together with string. It wasn't until like, I think, 1700s that they actually started adding covers to it. I'm going to start calling them codexes. yeah, this yeah. is technically accurate. You'll sound like a douche, but you'll be right. <laughs> and that's the most important thing. I'm going to relax and read a codex. <laughs> Sit down with your nice Tom Clancy codex. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like they should also bring back scrolls. Like that would be so dope. Yeah. Like if there was a scroll of like Harry Potter or something or, or anything. <laughs> like a good four miles long. It's so cool though. Just a fun beach scroll, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how well, we're going to get into how some of these phased out too. But the thing with scrolls. Tell me the thing with scrolls. <laughs> the, the thing with scrolls everyone complains about <laughs> is you had to unroll it and hold it open. So this doesn't seem like a big thing, except when all of these things are written by hand, you need to be able to read it and copy it. And you need both of your hands to hold this open. And then there was also the aspect of because scrolls can only be started from the beginning, it made it very hard to like, oh, okay, well, I did half of this. Now I'm going to pick it up. There's no bookmark on a scroll. (laughs) You just keep going until you find it again and hope you don't destroy this ridiculously fragile virus that is the only copy of this thing in existence. Andrew, I've been like giggling to myself this whole time because like you started this off like it was a Seinfeld bit and I've been playing it in my head as if that's what it were the What's entire the deal time. Scro- you know the thing about scrolls. <laughs> you need both hands. <laughs> that would have absolutely killed in 12th Dynasty Egypt. So yes, th- this was the challenge of the time. It was still quite a while before we get into the actual codex, but parchments starts being developed around 3rd century BCE. The legend attributes it to uh, Eumenes II, the king of Pergamon, which became Pergamenium, which became the term parchment. And it was easier to conserve over time. It was more solid and allowed you to erase text, but it was very expensive and the material was more rare and took a lot more time to produce a document. You also, again, had quality. You had material like vellum, which was a high quality parchment made from calf hide. Value of book depended very much on the creation, how it was made, how it was preserved. So while parchment developed in Greece and Rome as well, Rome also had their own unique creation, the Pugilaris, which was just a wax-coated wooden tablet, which I thought was so creative. They'd have a stylus, one end pointed, the other rounded, allowing them to write into the wax and then erase with the rounded end as well. It was basically the early portable whiteboard. I like that. That's cool. I hadn't heard of this before. It was one that I started really looking into because this was fantastic. You realize this was used for everyday purposes. There was accounting notes for teaching children to write. So yeah, fantastic invention we should obviously bring back. Paper was first invented in China in the first century CE. This was a major development that unfortunately mostly stayed in the Eastern world for a while. But even before that, their writing would often appear on bone or shells, even silk long before this time. And their first recognizable books were made of rolls of thin split and dried bamboo bound together with hemp, silk, or leather. Also, there's a lot of discussion as to how the writing should be portrayed here. Obviously, left to right has become fairly standard by this point. But it's also, again, you've got a scroller using the whole thing. How the up and down is obviously a key aspect of scrolls, although depending on the region, it could be rolled sideways or horizontally or vertically. There's a lot of complication here that we eventually see writing advance. And in the advancement of writing, we get to the advancement of books and codices and general practices. Because, I mean, at this time, there is very little form around it. This is more in the Eastern world than the Western, but there aren't breaks between words. There isn't punctuation. I have an old joke that I don't think I've told in a couple of years about how it must have been terrifying to live in ancient Rome because since Latin only had capital letters, you had to scream everything. <laughs> and uh, that's about the response it gets from an audience, which is why I haven't told it in so long. No, it's a small joke. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of capitalizations, I, maybe you saw me tweet this, but I recently realized that there's no way to capitalize aka scream numbers. <laughs> <laughs> this is some bullshit. I, you 
huge design flaw. I love that. <laughs> it's purely exclamation points that you have to add at that point. Yeah. Like I want to scream a number, you know, or say it quietly. And then someone posted as a response that actually there are uppercase and lowercase numbers and we only use uppercase numbers. So we're always screaming the number. <laughs> and that's math. That's uh, there's got to be some sort of moral in there. <laughs> But I'm curious now as to lowercase numbers. I didn't realize that. That's something I'm going to have to go. Did you look this up? Did you see the difference? Yeah. Someone posted like an article and it showed what they're basically the same, just, you know, smaller. Just smaller? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So really, whether that's upper or lower, lowercase just depends on how my handwriting is. Yeah. yeah. That's entirely different. Okay. So I've got way too many notes for this here. The texts in the East, they were reproduced using woodblock printing. And as much credit as given to Gutenberg, China figured this out 400 years earlier, Bai Shang invented the process of movable type printing between 1041 and 1048 CE. Doesn't sound like he was white, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, yes, this was the same method that Gutenberg eventually uses in the 1400s. Supposedly, though, this was an independent creation rather than something that had moved over from the East. But still, China, as always, was way ahead of it. Obviously, even having paper about 1100 years before it finally made its way to the West. And yeah, this, this was movable components containing letters, numbers, symbols of punctuation marks could be moved to recreate the text of a document. And the one done by Shang was done with porcelain too, which I thought was fantastic. So China was already way ahead of this. There also scrolls were fascinating because many of them were folded in this concertina style and then some were bound at one end eventually reaching the modern codex form. So yeah, if you just look at a timeline of Chinese publication, printing, writing, it's fantastic development. One of the issues here though in, in some of the ancient world was ancient authors had no rights concerning their published work. There weren't authors or publishing rights. Anyone could have a text recopied and even changed and scribes earned money and authors mostly just earned reputation unless a patron paid them specifically. But a book could just make its author famous, which could lead to other work. It is essentially the exact same thing we're doing now. I was about to say, aren't those tweets? Yeah, it's, it's just <laughs> throwing content into the ether, hoping somebody picks it up enough to pay over to do something else. But along with this, censorship also began absurdly early. Protagoras, who lived in the 5th century BCE, had his works burned because he was proponent of agnosticism and argued that one couldn't know if the gods existed. Cultural conflicts also led to significant book destruction. This was almost always the cause of massive destruction. Diocletian ordered the burn of Christian texts. Christians later burned libraries containing heretical or non-canonical Christian texts. Basically, if you were a conqueror and took over an area, you would immediately destroy anything that reinforced the beliefs of the peoples that were already there. This was standard practice and there was so much lost because of it. I love how you refer to the burning of non-canonical Christian texts like they were just like find the fan fiction and burn it. Burn all the fan fiction about Christ. There's too much of it. There is canon and there's the bullshit everything else. <laughs> I don't pay attention to the extended universe Jesus stuff, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is exactly how it is now with like Marvel and shit. It's like, is that canon? Oh yeah, this is exactly it. And because of this, because of this destruction, basically keepers of the books transferred to monasteries because they wanted to preserve these ancient texts to study them and learn from them. The thing was, they deemed what texts were important. They also deemed texts as too dangerous for monks to read. So these people that are supposedly preserving that, it's not like everyone agreed, okay, the monks are going to take care of it. The monks secreted away these books 
work was a large part of the aspect of being a monk, so copying these texts would be their jobs. But you had limited material, so you would erase or write over the text that you deemed less important because they weren't as significant to your personal faith, and uh, use it to just repeat <laughs> the text of the line that you already liked. My dad used to do that with videotapes, so I understand the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, if you were alive in the in the early nineties, you're very familiar with this process. So there was also the issue of owning books was a status symbol because of, of this, because how rare they were. Later in like the 1400s, 1500s, books in libraries, which were not even necessarily open to everyone, would often be kept on chains to avoid theft. These were rare, these were hard to maintain, and it also became a symbol in which the wealthy would either build libraries or build their own personal collection. Emperor Augustus even surrounded himself with great authors of the time, which led to influence on the work that was published. No one that's a great author that's going to be in the company of Augustus is going to write negative things about him. This is very much around the concept of history as written by the victors, except more in the present tense. It's that they're controlling what's written as it's it's happening. They're controlling the narrative. It's not just that the others were destroyed. There is a lot of influence over what's actually created. So we have development in ancient Greece. We know from artwork in the 5th and 6th century BCE that books existed then, but lack of artifacts suggests there wasn't an extensive book trade, though there were sites devoted to their sales. The spread of books and attention to their cataloging, conservation, as well as literary criticism developed during the Hellenistic period between 323 and 21 BCE after the death of Alexander, but before the rise of the Roman Empire, and this was largely impacted because of Aristotle's message on the desire and importance for knowledge, which led to this proliferation. So great libraries were built, uh, somewhat for the cause of knowledge and somewhat for political prestige. You had the library at Antioch, built 3rd century BCE, a library at Pergamum, built in the same century, it contained around 200,000 volumes, which considering how hard these were to produce is absolutely insane. The library at Athens, Pantanos, and Hadrian, all built around 2nd century CE. In Rome, book production developed in the 1st century BCE, with Latin literature influenced by by the Greeks. The spread of the empire led to the spread of books. In 377 CE, there were 28 libraries in Rome with many smaller libraries in other cities, and it really began to develop. And then by the Middle Ages, the scroll had been replaced by the Codex, and it was significant for all the reasons we discussed about it. It led for marking, it led for it to them being able to copy it much easier, and it led to the advancement of the written language. As now, something I had not really considered was that if all of your words are just kind of grouped together and all in the same font and uppercase, and there's no punctuation and no pause, reading it out loud is going to make it significantly easier to tell what things sound right. So the invention of the codex led to people actually being able to read to themselves, which I had not considered at all, but realizing that everyone that had to read probably had to do it out loud sounds absolutely infuriating. I mean, that makes sense because like there are only certain people that can read and they're probably trying to impart this knowledge on other people. So everything was made to be just like, all right, listen up, guys. This is what history is. Yeah. Because like the novel isn't going to come around to like like shockingly late. Yeah, we're at like 300 CE now, so we're, we're not for another like 13, 1400 years. This is the original gatekeeping right here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, at this point, every story is it's going to be historical or legal, or it's going to be basically repeating or modifying some myth. At this point, the stories are relatively fixed. So let's skip ahead a little bit to the late Middle Ages, getting closer to this development. And then we're going to get out of this soon. I'm going to stop around Gutenberg so we can get into <laughs> your actual thoughts on it. But the arrival of cities in Europe starting around the 12th century led a book production to extend outside monasteries. This revival led into the intellectual renaissance, the manuscript culture, using 
using manuscripts to store and spread information developed in European cities at the time. And this is also around the time we see growth in universities and the development of new production types. Reference manuscripts were used by students, professors for teaching. Development of commerce in the bourgeoisie meant a demand for specialized and general text, whether and basically the, the forms available, law, history, or fiction. And this is when writing in the more common sense, poetry, you know, a couple hundred years, novels, etc., began to develop. But royal and private libraries also became more common in 14th, 15th century. This is also when paper finally spread throughout Europe in the 14th century, coming from China via the Arab people in Spain in the 11th and 12th centuries. And parchment would still be used for luxury editions, but paper would become standard for ordinary copies, though it wasn't until 18th century that someone figured out if you bleach the paper, you make it white and easier to write on and read. So at this point, books are still fairly rough and again, bound with string or glue without cover. They're not expected to necessarily last for a particularly long time, but they're still highly valued. And then the biggest development came when Johann Gutenberg created something, again, uh, Bishang had already invented 400 years earlier, but this was around 1440 and brings book production into the industrial age. Books were no longer viewed as a singular object. And this was the phrase when I read it that struck me as so interesting, that the idea that when you had a book, this was the existence of this work. When you had a book, it was not the concept or the idea. If I read a book now, I'd be like, oh, you should check this out. If you had a book now, you had its existence in your hands. You should read this. I have to give it to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we have known, obviously, from the beginning, just because this was constantly destroyed, how important the written word was to spreading concepts and ideas and to understanding knowledge. So the invention of the Gutenberg press, what was so significant about this wasn't just like, oh, we can make this easier now. This was a chance for knowledge to spread and be shared in a way that it could not even be considered before. And because of this, the publication of a book became an enterprise. It required funding for its creation and a market for its distribution. But the cost of each individual book was lowered significantly, and this led to this surge in distribution. And the book as we know it today, printed on paper in codex form, dates from only about the 15th century, relatively recent, and such a turning point that books printed before January 1st, 1501, are now called incunables. We wanted a point to... <laughs> differentiate here. This was significant in that the method really evolved. Why incunables? What does that mean? Everybody knows this. It's an early printed book, especially one printed before 1509. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was the incunabula, I think you'd mentioned to us, right? Yeah, that was... yeah the incunabula. <laughs> <laughs> so this was also just that we needed a way to differentiate here. Obviously, the invention of the press changed how literature and writing was seen. One thing that we did have trouble with for quite a while was writing it in a common vernacular. For far too long, it was still written almost exclusively in Latin, again, limiting who could actually access it and understand it. But books themselves did spread throughout Europe fairly quickly, and it was just the concept of production shifting to a way where everyone could access it. That took quite a while. And the numbers here, because I I always find that fascinating. In 2010, as part of their effort to digitize every book, Google had to determine what qualifies as a book and then count them all. And the ISBN number is supposed to represent this, but there's a lot of stuff that's put in for various reasons that may or may not be a book. Also, some ISBN numbers are shared by up to 1,500 books. So Google went through some advanced work here and they determined there were, as of 2010, 129,864,880 unique books in the world. I'm going to be honest, lower than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's an unimaginable number, but like, 
I still feel like that's not enough books. I was torn because I actually had the same kind of thought and then I thought, all right, but how recently was it that everyone could actually write? Like, if you're ultimately going between everyone actually had a chance to write a book only for like the past 200 years, maybe. Okay, but here's a question. What counts as a book? What's their cutoff? There was a lot of specifics on this and there was a lot of things. Basically, it's like enough writing <laughs> was the kind of gist of it. Like, you've, you've got a few pages together here. They had very specific you know when you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like pornography. I it's know a book when I see it, okay? <laughs> I can figure out books. It's a feeling. I don't know. Is my TV manual, is that a book? So this was the kind of stuff they had to discuss, was that like pamphlets they kind of excluded. So a book was more specific, more permanent, slightly longer, but it was basically, yeah, if you had a few things connected by some pages held together, it was writing with a purpose, yes, yeah, it's going to be a book. We're going to call that. <laughs> Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Book, yes or Absolutely no? a book. That's yeah, a book. yeah, hundred percent a book. book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> TV guide, maybe not a book. Right. That's a magazine. <laughs> Okay, now we're trying to figure out the difference between magazines and books, because now <laughs> that seems finicky to me. Yeah. Honestly, I left out the pages that I had on the newspaper, because that was its own episode. But if we get into, eventually, I do an episode on the invention of the newspaper and how insane that is. I know we covered it, like, briefly in some other ones. Yeah, there's a lot of distinction here that's like, all right, what do we actually want to consider some of this stuff? And yeah, there's some variance here, especially, too, when a lot of the early work was not particularly long. But, you know, if it held around for 2,000 years, they're going to call it a book. I I wonder how much that number increased from 2010 to now. I was wondering that too. I looked for it. I could not find numbers on it, but I'm betting significantly because it has become so easy to release your own book, no matter how terrible it is. Well, because it doesn't even have to be a codex anymore. No, it could be no, absolutely anything. It's just your dinosaur erotica that yeah. you were able to <laughs> upload to Amazon. Yeah. And I think that the form has obviously changed. Again, I did leave it off here because the next like 500 years are like, oh yeah, we developed some stuff and it got better. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, it's now all on the internet. Random House came around. Yeah. <laughs> Penguin Publishing is a thing. Oh God, yeah. I mean, if, if you read about the Cambridge Press, which started by Henry VIII, you know, they tend to leave this part out, but largely for propaganda purposes. One of the early publishing houses and still around today. Like, no, there was huge development, but it was also turning books into a business, uh, which I think leads us to where it went wrong, which I think obviously we covered pretty well in the beginning. But Alex, specifically where for you do you feel like it all went wrong i mean i don't think they should have ever put it on the stone tablet to be honest yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 yeah. that was where it went Remember off remember when it was just a bunch of people sitting around the fire and telling stories like we need to get back yeah. to that i think the minute they wrote a single word down we were fucked i, yeah. don't, know. I, don't, know, I don't know how else to put it you know I mean, I think every step along the way, it's that paradox of like, the more available you make something that everyone can do it, the sort of like, more it becomes a business and a thing that loses the original intent or something. I think that's very true. And not saying to, to this timeline for, for where it went wrong, because basically that's what we said at the beginning, where it went wrong was when it, it shifted from this concept of creating a work to a hustle culture where it is now my responsibility to release all forms of content all the time and to make my writing as prolific and as abundant as possible. And I think it, when it shifted from like, okay, cool, now it's mass
mass produced. Now, if you're really good, we have some people to help you get it out there to now it's mass produced. Everyone has to be reaching out to all these people all the time to desperately try to get their work out there. And then the shift to self-publishing because that became so untenable where it's possible, but without the resources, it's not particularly respected. There are some people that are doing it because it happens to be the right thing for them. There are also people that are doing it because their book is bad. And they can sell it on Amazon for 50 cents and not have to edit it or even fix any typos or misspellings. And I think that the line between creation and how it exists is so blurred. And I get so annoyed so regularly just thinking about the existence of Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, (laughs) Just from, I had not realized, I thought before this was like, oh, it's just a sex thing that isn't really my genre. And then my girlfriend read me excerpts from it and it is some of the worst writing I have ever read. Like stuff that you would learn in any first week of any freshman writing class about this is wrong and not how it's done. And also, I mean, I'm actually okay with stuff being fanfic and going off in its own direction. Obviously, this was basically a Twilight fanfic spinoff kind of thing. But I hate that this was so successful when I know so many fantastic writers that are working to create these amazing things. And it was like, what if this guy was just super horny and I'm not going to take any classes or learn how to format this and I'm just going to put it out there. And it taps into the zeitgeist in a way where it becomes a phenom rather than anything based on legitimacy or skill. And I find that very frustrating. So other than your elitist thing where you made fun of my favorite book series, uh, what do you think about (laughs) (laughs) self-publishing? I know people that have, have used it well, where it's like, look, I've, I've created something. I just want to get it out there. My goal here isn't to become the world's most famous author. I've created something I'd like to share. And that's a, a great use of it. So I, I think there's absolutely a legitimate need for it, especially because we know the issues with traditional publishing. We know it is largely dominated by able-bodied, straight, white women. That is is the majority of the publishing houses. And it's led to far less diverse voices than we need being released. And self-publishing has created an opportunity for that, for people to to release on their own when they realize that there is an audience for them, but there aren't intermediaries that understand that. So there's been a lot of good from it. It's also hard because it's lumped in the exact same with those that just didn't want to do the work to create something that was ready for real publishing. So to hit you with some numbers here, in 2013, Forbes estimated that in the past like few years surrounding that, there would be released between 600,000 and 1 million books released in the U.S., just straight up, with half of those being self-published works. So between 300,000 and 500,000 works per year being self-published works. And this is in 2013. At 2018, 1.7 million self-published books were released in the United States. Okay, so this was 2017 or 18? No, 2018. 2018, 1% of all the books previously written in history (laughs) were written and self-published. As many has been written in all of mankind's existence until 2010, 1% of that was written and released just in 2018. And that's just going to keep going up, that number. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, this was before people were locked in their homes with nothing to do for an entire year. You know how much (laughs) self-published work was probably created during the pandemic? 
Oh, yeah. Not mine. I said I was going to write and then I didn't like an idiot. <laughs> you know, I, I think you're right about how like self-publishing is really powerful and important for people that fall outside of that mainstream sort of bullshit. And I think that there's a lot of value to that. I think what I'm realizing about myself and what I want to get away from is sort of creating self-publishing work, whether that be videos or whatever, with the intent of it becoming huge, you know? And I think it's that intent that I think is like toxic to me personally. And I feel like if I could change that and just like make it for an audience that's slowly growing, you know, blah, 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 that'd be dope. I just don't know how to do that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that's very true. It's something I've struggled with too. And when this wasn't my career, when I was just doing this on the side, was writing jokes for fun, was pre-med, this was very easy. Of course, I wanted to grow the account, but it didn't really matter. Then once I left that and decided to make this my career, suddenly there was this pressure where each joke that didn't work was upsetting, where it was a, I put thought into this, if this went off like I believe it should, the success I could have gained from this, and to just be able to create, to put something out there and not check it, not see how it did. It's like, no, I made it. If people like it, great. If they don't, I'm going to make another one tomorrow anyway. But that ability to detach is incredibly hard to do. Also, just going to throw out there with things like Substack and things like that. So we're, we're all in the comedy world. We know that like making content just for it to blow up becomes a little draining and things like that. But with the Substacks and whatnot, I feel like we've created this system where people can pretty much be like, okay, I get my news from Rick at Rick's publishing on <laughs> Substack. And it's just whatever Rick thinks he wants to put out there. And like that becomes just as legitimate and people are paying for it. And it's, it's a self-sustaining business where he can say whatever he wants and like there's no shutoff valve for it. Everyone is able to publish all the time and it's almost impossible to be like, okay, well, this is a trusted source. This is not a trusted source. They look identical. They look like they are put like the same amount of like money and quality is put into both of them. But one has standards and quality control and the other doesn't. And people can just make their choice of what they prefer. And that's what we've kind of turned the entire industry into. Oh, yeah. I think that's very true. And also you have, especially on the far right, people that claim to be the most skeptical, but they're just skeptical of the things they don't believe in, which isn't skepticism. That's everyone's skeptical of the things they don't believe in. I, that's, that's just what it is to believe in things. But I, I made this post years ago. It was just a, a throwaway, but just a real thing that had happened. And I immediately got all of the replies of there's no way this happened. And I was like, no, this is a, this is a real thing. This happened to me today. This is like happening like an hour ago. And I realized that they were probably had an image of a dramatic scene, but it was a story about a guy. This was early on in Trump's presidency where he stood up in a restaurant and said, I love Trump. I can say that I'm an American. And like, yeah, nobody said otherwise, nobody cares. And I think think that people pictured it as being like this really dramatic scene as like, oh yeah, I've seen people post this kind of thing where it's an obviously fake story about where everyone in the restaurant applauded. But it, it was an empty restaurant. I was the only other person in there. He was sitting with a friend who was like humiliated by this. This old guy was just delusional and just decided <laughs> to go up and yell about how much he loved Trump. And we all kind of waited for him to be done and leave. But there was no conveyance of this. And I have read similar stories where I'm like, yeah, that was absolutely a person making that up. And I think that is part of the issue too, when there is such an abundance of source and without the filter system we used to have, the regulation of the news and the ethics of the news. And it's also shades of the people believing their own source, claiming that the main news is the one that's lying. And it's, it's made it very hard to determine what is a source unless you have been taught how to research. That is a very important thing to learn, how to check sources. And I realize it's something that most people 
aren't taught. You know, if the guy is citing something that he wrote, he's probably not legitimate. But that's not something most people even think to check. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. I got no follow up other than we created a bad system and we're using it to feed all of our careers in comedy. People are using it to field their careers in journalism. And there's a lot of self aggrandizement where it's just all promotion and what's going to get clicks. And okay, the, well, this this story needs a little this new story that I'm writing needs a little needs a little stank on it so that people can yeah. get real <laughs> mad about it. So they'll they'll exaggerate the parts. So, you know, there's no oversight or, you know, we'll write jokes where it's just like we have to find the intersection of boss baby, but also <laughs> real truth that I want to say so that this show can really take off. And it's just like it isn't the greatest thing to make art. It's not the greatest thing to make truth, but it is a great way to make content yeah. and money for the platforms. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's an issue too. Obviously a Twitter being the worst one for it because they don't pay <laughs> their creators, but we do it there anyway. But no, it is a, a very weird thing where, because as comedians, our work, it relies on truth. It does. We're making jokes. We're often absurd about it, but it relies on an essence of an understanding and a connection with the audience and what they know is reality. And it's very strange to then take it to this surreal marketplace. And it's also very cool that you have so many viewpoints. And I have comedians that are absolutely nothing like me, that they're writing in a completely different way from a completely different voice. And I'm getting to experience their content and share it along with mine. And it helps me grow. It helps me become a better writer, a better creator. And there's a lot of wonderful things in that, that freedom. There's also just the insanity of it. And the internet is a very toxic place and to be putting your creation out there is a hard thing to do. In some ways, it's easier for me to bomb on stage where I can just be like, okay, well, I, I see what it was. I know exactly what that was. Either I screwed up or the audience was bad. It's 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 going to be one of those two. <laughs> Sometimes it's both, but it's it's one of those two. With the internet, it could be so many things. And it's very weird to make a joke about a baby duck and have someone respond like, my grandfather was killed by a baby duck and we think that duck belonged to a Nazi. And it was like, well, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> that really has nothing to do with what I was going for here. I, I'm very sad that happened to you, but I don't know what that has to do with me in any way. <laughs> have you guys heard about this thing called the dark forest theory of the internet? Please, no, please enlighten please. me. I know what it is, but explain it to Andy. <laughs> right, 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 right. Of course. I knew you knew. Basically, it's this dude. His name's Yancey Strickler, I think. He was one of the co-founders of Kickstarter, and he's like this cool thinker that I read a lot of his stuff. And he has this theory that like the more that Twitter and Facebook and all of these big platforms become like these Times Square feeling massive ads are everywhere. Like there's billions of people there. Those are like not safe places, you know, to like hang out or share stuff. So basically people hide away in these dark forests, which are essentially like Substacks, Discord, group chats. Group chats are a huge one. You know, essentially these like contained, smaller, safer, cozier, they're called, spaces. And I think that's interesting, you know, and I think that's cool in, in a lot of ways where it's like there's a lot more voices, but it's a little safer and a little like cozier than just out in fucking Times Square where it's like, I don't want to be there. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. You and I are in a, a group chat too that I know I'm not particularly active in, but there are interesting places too. There are some where I'm in it and be 
you're like, okay, these are a lot of people who I don't really know. There's some interesting thoughts here. There are also some that I'm in with fantastic writers that help spur new ideas. And it's great to be able to so quickly shift from these different groups and these different viewpoints. And also occasionally, yeah, I just use it to get a break from <laughs> the awfulness that I'm scrolling through where I'm not done being on Twitter, but I want to get somewhere safe. And it's like, oh yeah, here's a group of people I really like. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but yeah, that's exactly how I use it. Yeah. So this all being said, and I feel like we're kind of leaning that direction anyways, we have our next segment in their defense where we have to defend this broad idea of anyone can publish anything anywhere all the time. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, Alex, do you have anything there? You want to go first? I mean, yeah, you know, in, in the in the defense of, of publishing, it's important for everybody to be able to publish anything, you know, so that qualified leaders such as Trump can finally be elected. <laughs> you know, like... The, it, in order for him to be elected, everyone had to have a voice. And, you know, we all wanted that. We all needed that. And finally, it happened. So I think it's important. <laughs> that was <laughs> wonderful and slightly terrifying, Alex, with how well you delivered that with a, a straight face. <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to also <laughs> say I'm very pro-Trump. That, this is my kind of coming out. Yeah. <laughs> so that it has, has led to uh, some absolutely horrific things like that. But in their defense, like, yeah, sh- sure. It, 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 I'm sure, has led to something going on the opposite end, too. When you have anything? I'll just say that if everyone does not have the ability to publish, then there are going to be a certain set of people that are going to make the decisions of what gets published. And based on how power dynamics have been all throughout all of time, those people are typically going to be part of groups that will then make it very insular and others will not be able to break through as easily. You'll see that, you know, writing staffs for late night shows and all these programs that we watch have gotten so much more diverse over a period of time. And there a lot of times there are writers that were found on platforms like Twitter. And would they have been able to do that otherwise? Probably not. They would not have had no visibility, no way to break through, no way to get eyes on their content unless they were able to push it and really drive viewership to them and prove that they were a product that people wanted to buy. So in that respect, it was very much needed in order to diversify the publishing industry and entertainment as a whole. And yeah, that's my defense. That is a very good point and very legitimate. I think for my, in their defense, Look, it has obviously been used for like pure evil. There's also a lot of stuff out there that I just don't like has has come to exist because of that. But ultimately, my complaints about all of this were that I'm using it wrong. My my complaints are that I get annoyed, that I get upset about the stuff that's out there that isn't working. I have a platform where people are listening to me. That's a cool thing. And it would be great if I was constantly emotionally satisfied from that. But honestly, that feels like a ridiculous expectation to put on the entire world outside of myself to make me happy when I release something that I happen to like. It's a good thing overall. It's it's used wrong. There could certainly be more regulation. There could certainly be plenty of people that just probably shouldn't be allowed access anymore. But ultimately, it's been a chance to share some great stuff. It's given me some access to some wonderful things. And if my big complaint about it is that I get angry because people don't like me enough on there, that mostly feels like a me problem. So in conclusion, Andrew is the problem. Yeah, that's, yeah I, think that, <laughs> I think that's what we've decided. mostly me, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Well, I think that about something we have the history of publishing. We have what we love in the work we've actually created, where it went wrong and how we have had to deal with everyone else responding to that work. And in their defense, where we all just kind of 
recognize what we, this is what it is and we're dealing with it as best we can. Alex DeBranco, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. This was super fun. Absolutely. It was our pleasure. Guys, you can follow Alex at Z on Twitter, at Alex DeBranco on uh, TikTok and Instagram. And please go check out this apparently well-lauded internet series that Alex has never watched it. <laughs> yeah, this New York Times like rave reviews internet series that he didn't want to talk about till Andrew like drug it out of him. Nobody knows if it's good. Like, yeah. I haven't seen it. I can't talk about it if I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. But, but what was the name of this again? It's called Distance, and you can see it at distancetheseries.com. It has an actual website, guys. You know that's good. So, yeah, please absolutely do go check that out. There are three of us here. None of us know what is good. So, yeah, please go find out for us and let us know. We're all very curious. So, Alex, thank you for being here. Guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We also have a Patreon down on the show notes. It helps us keep the show running. Our episode last week was one of our Here's Where We Went Wrong that we're going to release on the Patreon periodically with video there as well. So it's it's a lot of fun. Please go check it out. We're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.